again, at what it means to be God's people. This is the fourth part of this. Again, this is where God is giving us a condensed version of Exodus. All of Exodus is within, are within uh, these nine verses. We really get a glimpse of what it really means to be God's people, to have God as our Redeemer. I desire this morning that you would see, Christian, that God is worthy of more of your trust and worship. God is worthy of more of your trust and worship. I think sometimes as believers we say, well, I trust him and I sing to him, I worship him. But there's a limit to our trust. There's a limit to our worship and devotion to him. I want to prove to you today by God's word that he is deserving of more trust, more worship, more devotion. Uh, imagine before you get onto a plane, if you have this kind of a personality, I don't, some do, you have this personality where you just go up and talk to anybody. And you go up to uh, a, a, a pilot and you ask the pilot, I'm about to get on your plane. Uh, and I'm going to go on, away on vacation. Prove to me that I should trust you. Or imagine go, t- walking up to the plane engineer, the man that, uh, that designed the plane, uh, woman or whoever it was, the person that designed the plane and, and crafted the engine and all the aerodynamics of that, of that, uh, that airplane. And you say to that person, prove to me that I should trust your plane. Well, if the plane engineer or the, the pilot begins to explain to you all the nuts and bolts of the plane, all the, the, the uh, dynamics of combustion and aerodynamics and the, the, what all those knobs and buttons and levers do in, in the cockpit of the, where the pilot sits. About one minute in, you're, you're going to stop him and say, okay, 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 I trust you, I trust you. Because all that information is just going to go right over your head, right? I mean, unless you are a pilot or unless you are a plane engineer. Um, most of us, we'll just stop them and say, okay, 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 I believe you. I believe you, I'll board the plane, right? And this word that God has for us today will be kind of like that. God is going to prove to you that you can trust him. And there might be some times in our, moments in our time together this morning where you might feel like, okay, stop, that's just too much, that's too, just too much. But God wants to prove to you beyond the shadow of a doubt that he's worthy of your trust. He's worthy of more of your trust. You can trust him with more and more of your life. And friend, if you don't know him, if you don't have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, he wants to prove to you today for the first time you can trust him. And Christian, he he wants to prove to you that you can trust him even greater, in greater ways. As I've been mentioning, this passage contains the entire theological message of Exodus. The central message of Exodus ties together four central biblical themes that are not just in Exodus, but biblical themes that we see throughout the Old Testament and the New. These themes are the knowledge of God, to know God, uh, what it means to be the covenant people of God, have a covenant relationship, Uh, the redemption of God, his deliverance, his salvation, of his people, and also this theme of the promised land. This last theme of the promised land is what we're going to look at today. It's a giant topic. We're not going to go to every verse. We're not going to cover every nuance, every part of this. But we're going to, I trust and I hope, we're going to look at just enough to get the point across. You can trust God even more so.
Then you might be wondering, why, why in the world are we learning about the promised land? I mean, that's in Israel, right? That's over there. We're over here in America. What does that have to do with us? I mean, uh, that was a promise made to Israel, not, not to me, right? Um, why are we talking about this as a New Testament church in San Jose, California? Why? Well, a few reasons. One, it helps you understand what is happening in Jerusalem today. It helps you understand why there's a struggle over that small piece of land. Now, this struggle has been going on, actually, for thousands of years. It's not new. What's happening, what's been happening the last month in Jerusalem, in Israel, uh, is not new. It's just the latest uh, event in the saga of Israel in that land. Also, it, it, this will provide, or excuse me, yeah, it will provide proof of the faithfulness of God. As I mentioned before, if God made a promise at any point in history, but yet backed out of that promise, then for us, the promise of our salvation, the promise of our eternity, how sure is that then? If God can enter into covenant and then back out, then won't he do that with the new covenant? With us? But if he makes a covenant and he stays faithful to that covenant, that promise, then we can have greater confidence that he will be faithful to us, his people. Lastly, it helps us to know our part in what God is doing as history just unfolds. Church, you play a part in this great drama of history that God has written out. And we're going to see our part in this as we go on. So today we're going to be looking at the content of the promised land, the contingency of the promised land, and the consummation of the promised land. It's big words, but I think we can wrap our minds around those. The content of the promised land, what it is, what is the promise about this promised land, the contingency, what are the, what are the qualifications of the fulfillment of that promise, and then the consummation of that promise. We're going to see how God will actually one day fulfill his promise, back up what he said thousands of years ago. First of all, the content of the promise. And that's right here in our passage. That's why we're talking about this. Verse 4, I also establish my covenant with them. That is Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That covenant to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they sojourn. And then jump down to verse 8. He says it again, I will bring you to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. So he repeats it twice in this passage. He wants us to be aware that what God is doing in the event of Exodus is he's beginning to fulfill that Abrahamic promise, that Abrahamic covenant that he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And notice who he's given this promise to. He's given it to the Israelites. Now, in this, at that time, the Israelites were in Egypt. We've been looking at this for a while now. They were in Egypt, and they were a non-citizen gang of slaves. They were not a people. They were not a nation. They had no government. They had no culture, you could say. Their culture was Egypt. Their society was Egypt. Yes, there was this pocket of, of remnant of people faithful to God who knew God, knew his word, um, and knew his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But by and large, they were a people that were just, they were slaves. And their identity was to be slaves forced into labor. They didn't have a land. They didn't have much of anything. 
hardly any possessions. Can you imagine generation after generation of not, ha- not owning anything? That's an evil thing. To put a people into that kind of living. And you can imagine for these people, they hear a promise like this. They hear of this old promise to this to, to grandpas, grandpas, grandpa, 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 you know, um, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, they, they, they hear about this old promise from this God that they've never seen. And this promise for a land that they would be their own people, their own nation. And you can imagine how unbelievable that was to them. They didn't have any hope of having a land. Nobody knew what that was like. But God had not abandoned his covenant plans for Israel. That covenant that he made with Abraham in Genesis 12, and that he repeated to Isaac and to Jacob, he promised here that he would lead Israel out of bondage by his mighty hand. And God vowed to deliver them from the domain and the domination of the world's greatest superpower of that time. That's no light thing. This was the superpower of the time. With the greatest military uh, might of all the nations in the whole world, Egypt was the nation to beat. And God promised, I will win. I will beat them. I will be victorious, and I will deliver you. But it's not merely this deliverance, this redemption, this salvation uh, for the Israelites just to wander around in the desert, in the wilderness. But it was a deliverance to a place, a place of permanent settlement. That was the promise. I'm not just going to set you free and then you're on your own. No, I'm going to set you free. I'm going to bring you to a land and it will be yours. Remember, the covenant was for land, people, and blessing. Back in Genesis 12, the promise was made to Abraham. The Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country, Genesis 12, verse 1, and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. God sheds a little bit more light specifically on this promise of this land that he's going to bring him to. In chapter 15, verse 18, it says, On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, again, saying to your descendants, I I have given this land. Notice it's already sure, it's already guaranteed. To your descendants, I have given this land. From the river of Egypt, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenite, and the Kenizzite, and the Cadmonite, and the Hittite, and the Perizzite, and the the Rephaim, and the Amorite, and the Canaanite, and the Girgashite, and the Jebusite. God repeats this promise to Isaac, son of Abram, son of Abraham. In Genesis 22, he repeats it again to Jacob in Genesis 28. He repeats it again to all of Israel in in Exodus 23 and in Numbers 34. He repeats it to Joshua and the new generation of Israelites that, that were the second generation freed people from Egypt in Joshua 1. The land promised to Abraham... Spend what is today 
known as Northern Egypt, Jordan, of course Israel, Saudi Arabia, part of Saudi Arabia, Iraq, Lebanon, and Syria. It's all of that land. It's, it, it, is, it is a wide span. All of that, the Israelites, the Jews, are entitled to. God gave them the deed to that land thousands of years ago. So that helps you understand what's happening today. They have a right to it. They do. Now, in Exodus chapter 6, this retelling of that promise of the land was given to the Israelite slaves. Follow with me here. This promise was given directly to the Israelite slaves. And the promise was, I'm going to free you slaves, I'm going to bring you out and give you a land. But we know from Exodus and from Numbers that that first generation that was delivered out of Egypt, they failed in their commitment to God. And so this promise was passed down to their children, the second generation. And so what Moses does is he records Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. He writes that not for these people that the promise was made to, but for their children. Why did he do that? Moses recorded this grand Exodus event and all the promises, all the background for that second generation because they would be the ones to actually enter into the land. That's what happens in Joshua, in the book of Joshua. They actually enter into the promised land. They get there. So, Mex- so, so Moses wrote Exodus, along with the other books of the Pentateuch, for this second generation, as they are preparing to enter into the promised land. Moses wrote it as a reminder of who they were, their identity, what their origins are, who their God is, and what God requires of them as that next generation of God's covenant people. He's passing on the torch. Joshua takes up the mantle as a leader, and the children of the freed slaves, this next generation of Israelites, they enter into the land, and it's their job now to, to remain loyal to God and to take over the promised land, to, to get the inheritance that God is promising to them. Now, what does this mean for us? Before we move on, the fact that Moses would do this for the next generation, what does that mean? Christian, you need to know your history. You need to know your ancestry. Now, I'm not talking about your ethnic ancestry, though that has its place. I'm talking about your spiritual ancestry. The history of the Bible and the history of the church are worthy, Christian, of your regular attention. You should know what has happened to God's people through the ages. Learn from their mistakes and their triumphs especially as recorded in Scripture. But you should also know the history of the church, the the past 2,000 years. Our failures, our victories for for these last two millennia will help us today meet the present hour and what we face in our nation, in our world. This isn't the first pandemic, right? So we can learn from history, learn from the church in the past. This isn't uh, the first time a nation has been overcome with uh, sexual immorality and debauchery. We can look back in history and even into the Word of God for how the church has dealt with this, how God's people have, have lived in this kind of world, this kind of society. So don't get caught up in the day-to-day headlines, right? Step back. Step back from the the headlines, from the nightly news. Step back a little bit and and see what God is doing on a global, grand scale. Ask those questions. 
Don't get so caught up with the numbers of how many people got vaccinated or how many people got the virus or how many people died. That's, that's too small of a view. Step back and see what, what is God doing in the world? What's God doing in my life? What's God doing in history? Step back and look at this historical scale of things. And as you do that, you will see throughout history, both in Scripture and in the history of the church the past 2,000 years, you will see the faithfulness and the power of God to his people. And that will spur you to trust him more and to worship him more. So, God promised a specific land to a specific people. That's clear from the text. To Abraham, it was an unconditional promise. It was an unconditional covenant. Right? This is something that God, this is a promise that God made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. No, if you do this, then I will give you a land, a people, and a blessing. But to Moses' generation and the following generations, the blessing of God, the promise even of the land as well, was contingent on the Israelites' obedience and devotion to him. For that generation, God said, I will fulfill this. I can fulfill it right now. But if you want me to fulfill it right now, you have to obey me. You have to follow me. It's not that he's saying, if I ever, if I ever fulfill this, you have to obey me. No, he will fulfill it. But the offer is, it seems like the offer is, I can fulfill it right now to you and your generation. You just got to obey me and follow me. Let me prove that to you. Deuteronomy chapter 30. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 15. Again, this is Moses writing to this new generation that's about to go into the promised land. Right? And they, they basically have a choice. They've been given all the law, all the history of their people. And they have a choice. You can go into the land and you can live like the, the world, or you can go into the land and do God's work. You can be loyal to God. Here's, here's how he explains it. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 15. See, I have set before you today life and prosperity and death and adversity. In that I command you today <clears throat> to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, and to keep his commandments and his statutes <clears throat> and his judgments, that you may live and multiply, and that the Lord your God may bless you in the land where you are entering to possess it. See, that's where, where they're going. They're going into the land to possess it. If you want God's blessing, obey me. But, verse 17, but if your heart turns away and you will not obey, but are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You will not prolong your days in the land where you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess it. I will call, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. So choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants, by loving the Lord your God, by obeying his voice, and by holding fast to him. For this is your life and the length of your days that you may live in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob to give it to them you see God is giving his people a choice here life or death prosperity or adversity blessing or curse you can either love and obey and be devoted to God, or you can turn your back on Him, 
You can disobey him or you can reject him. The choice is yours, he says, to this new generation. Now, by God's grace, this generation of Israelites, they generally obeyed God. Not perfectly, by any standard, of course, but generally as a nation, as a people. They followed God. They did. And so, the next generation, they entered into the promised land under the leadership of Joshua, and they had success. Joshua 1 10 and 11 says, Then Joshua commanded the officers of the people, saying, Pass through the midst of the camp and command the people, saying, Prepare provisions for yourselves, for within three days you are to cross this Jordan to go in to possess the land which your Lord, has, your God, is giving you to possess it. So Joshua rallies his troops and says, We're going in. And as time goes by in Joshua eleven twenty three, so Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord has spoken to Moses. And Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel, according to their divisions by their tribes. Thus, the land had rest from war. So there was this initial success of God's people, because there was this initial obedience and devotion to God. And so God begins to fulfill his Abrahamic promise of this land. However... However, according to Joshua 13, verses 1 through 7, you can look at it or write it down, there is still, there was still a land yet to be conquered. They didn't conquer it all. It was a wide area, remember, and they didn't fully inhabit the land. In Joshua 15, 63, it says, Jerusalem even, it, even Jerusalem, that, that key central city, was still ruled and occupied by the Jebusites, not conquered and taken over by Israel. And so over and over again in the book of Joshua, we see that Israel does not drive out all the Gentiles. They compromise God's clear commands to take over the land. So this initial success kind of just, just dies out as it were, as time goes on. God was faithful to his promise in that he brought them into the land, but the Israelites did not hold up their end in this covenant, this Mosaic covenant. They did not conquer all the land, and they did not drive out all the Gentile people, and as a result, they were infiltrated with sinfulness of the world, the idolatry of their surrounding nations. Now, after this initial conquest, and it seems like God is, is behind Israel, but yet there's these gaps, there's these holes in the fulfillment of it. After the conquest and at the end of his life, Joshua, this new leader, he makes clear that Israel's possession of the land is still contingent upon their obedience to that Mosaic covenant, their devotion and obedience to God. And as usual, it doesn't seem too promising. It doesn't. In fact, in his farewell speech, Joshua cautions Israel to take heed to God's word, lest they be expelled from the land that God has brought them to. In Joshua 23, it says there, Joshua is right after the Pentateuch, right after Genesis, Exodus, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, right after Deuteronomy. It's just the natural progression of the history of Israel. They conquer much of the land, but then at the end of his life in Joshua, I don't know why I'm in Judges, Joshua 23, in verse 6, he says, Be firm then, be firm then, to keep and do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses. Here's that exhortation again. So that you may not turn aside from it to the right or to the left. 
so that you will not associate with these nations, these which remain among you, or mention the name of their gods, or make anyone swear by them, or serve them, or bow down to them. But instead of that, you are to cling to the Lord your God, as you have done to this day. So he's saying, I'm, done, I'm passing away now. Stay loyal. You've made it this far. Don't give in now. Jump down to verse 11. So take diligent heed to yourselves to love the Lord your God. There's that call of Deuteronomy to love God. For if you ever go back and cling to the rest of these nations, these which remain among you, and intermarry with them, so that you associate with them and they with you, know with certainty that the Lord your God will not continue to drive these nations out from before you. Your conquests will stop, and, but they will be a snare and a trap to you, and a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from off this good land which the Lord your God has given you. So you see, he's saying, God will remove you even from this land. Not that he will break the covenant, but he will deal with his people. That covenant still stands. The promise of the land still stands, even though he disciplines. That doesn't mean that he broke his covenant, even though he removed them. Joshua 23, verse 15. Jump down to 15. It shall come about that just as all the good works which the Lord your God spoke to you have come upon you, so the Lord will bring upon you all the threats. So he says, God will keep his promises that he will bless you if you obey him, but he will also, don't doubt him, he'll keep his promises that he will discipline you and deal with you if you disobey him. These principles still stand today as believers, yet under the new covenant, these principles of God blessing those who obey him and disciplining those who do not still stand today. Nonetheless, he says, so the Lord will bring upon you all the threats until he has destroyed you. Look at how extreme it gets. He has destroyed you from off of this good land which the Lord your God has given you. When you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and go and serve other gods and bow down to them, then the anger of the Lord will burn against you, and you will perish quickly from off the good land which he has given you. Notice the focus on the land. So for many years, Israel was living in that land of promise, enjoying its bounty. It was a, a land filled with, uh, flowing with milk and honey. It was a bountiful land. Now, this is another aspect of that promised land. Not just the occupation of it, but the great blessing and the prosperity that was promised to God's people as they would live in this promised land. It was to be a land of fruitfulness, flowing with milk and honey. Turn with me to Deuteronomy 28. Deuteronomy 28. Verse 1, now it shall be if you diligently obey the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments, which I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. All these blessings will come upon you and overtake you if, if, there's a condition, you obey the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city and blessed shall you be in the country. Blessed shall be the offspring of your body and the produce of your ground and the offspring of your breasts, your, your beasts, and the increase of your herd and the young of your flock. Now jump down to verse 9. The Lord will establish you as a holy people to himself, as he swore to you, if, if, you keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in his ways. Verse 10, so all the people of the earth will see you that you are called by the name of the Lord and they will be afraid of you. The Lord will make you abound in prosperity in the offspring of your body and in the offspring of your beast 
and in the produce of your ground, in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers to give you. Here's that great blessing promise. God promised that the people and the land would prosper as long as they were obedient to the word of the Lord. But if they disobeyed the Lord, they would not be blessed in the land. Not only would they not occupy it, but they would not be blessed in it. Rather, they would be a cursed nation in a cursed land. Look at verse 15. But, I sh- but it shall come about. There's that but, that contrast, that, that shift. But it shall come about if you do not obey the Lord your God to observe to do all his commandments and his statutes with which I charge you today, that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. What curses? Well, verse 16. Cursed shall you be in the city, and cursed shall you be in the country. Jump down to verse 20. The Lord will send upon you curses, confusion, and rebuke in all you undertake to do, until you are destroyed, until you perish quickly, on account of the evil of your deeds, because you have forsaken me. He goes on, verse 33, A people whom you do not know shall eat up the produce of your ground and all your labors, and you will never be anything but oppressed and crushed continually. Verse 34, he says, You will be driven mad by the side of what you see. It's going to be so bad, it's going to drive you crazy. Literally, it will break you mentally and spiritually. You will snap. It will get so hard. Don't you, do you feel like that ever? That it's getting so hard, I'm going, to, I'm going to snap, but usually we don't. The Lord upholds us. But he says here, I'm, I'm going to make it so bad, you will snap. You will go crazy. You will lose it. Verse 38, you shall bring out much seed to the field, but you will gather in little, for the locusts will consume it. So you're going you're gonna to spread seed and expect a huge return, but it will be very little because of the locusts, these insects. Verse 39, you shall plant and cultivate vineyards, but you will neither drink of the wine nor gather the grapes, for the worm will devour them. You shall have olive trees throughout your territory, but you will not anoint yourself with the oil, for your, oil, your olives will drop off. Verse 41, you shall have sons and daughters, but they will not be yours, for they will go into captivity. The cricket shall possess all your trees and the produce of your ground. And then lastly at verse 45, so all these curses shall come on you and pursue you and overtake you until you are destroyed because you would not obey the Lord your God by keeping his commandments and his statutes which he commanded you. This, as it turns out, would be the history of Israel for the most part. Of course, there's highs and there's lows, but generally speaking, outside of the initial victories of Joshua and the conquest, outside of the, the, um, the, the prosperity under King David, it began to just fall apart pretty quickly after King David passed. Outside of those two main um, positives in the history of Israel, it was characterized by this. These kinds of cursings, this kind of, of destruction to the nation and their land. Despite the warning and the pleading of God through his prophets throughout the ages, the people of God were still stubborn in their disobedience. And as a result, the people and the land experienced the judgments of God. You just have to look at Joel to see that. God struck Judah. For example, with a plague of locusts, there were four waves of locusts that stripped the land of all vegetation. 
through various plagues from God, through constant wars with surrounding nations, and of course through the massive destruction of the Assyrians, the Babylonians, and the Persians throughout history, God made his people and his land desolate. Side note, this, this judgment, this discipline of God for sin is seen here and promised here in the destruction, the corruption, the desolation of land and nature. He uses nature to execute his judgment. This is nothing new to God. He's always been doing this. I mean, you just have to look at Genesis 3, right? Genesis 3 is the prototype of God's judgment communicated one way through nature. Thorns and thistles, right? By the sweat of your brow, you're going to work. It's not going to produce easily, but it's going to be hard work because of the curse. It started back then. So, what does that mean? Much more than human population, pollution, oil drilling, plastics, car emissions whatever, that we are told causes the, the destruction of a land. Truly, sin is. Through all this time, God repeatedly, in the, in the history of Israel, he repeatedly called Israel to repentance. If Israel would only repent of their sins, God would have restored them and their land. Joel 2 is, is one cry. Yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, weeping, mourning, and rend your heart and not your garments. Now return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, and relenting of evil. Turn to me, he says. Ezekiel 33, he says, As I live, declares the Lord God, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Why then will you die, O house of Israel? Isaiah 55, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return to the Lord, and he will have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Time and time again, that was the ministry of the prophets of the Old Testament, was in the face of the corruption and the falling away of the people, they constantly called them back to God. But they warned them, they would always warn them, if you don't come back, judgment will come. And that's a prophetic part of the ministry of the prophets. But that call to Israel to repent and to turn to God went out generation after generation to the Israelites until God sent his son, Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah, the promised one that Israel was waiting for. He would be the one. He would be the one who would make all things right. He would make them right with God restore them, purify them of their sin. He would rule over them as king, and he would gather them back to their promised land and bless them. That's, all, that's what those Old Testament prophecies of the Messiah are talking about. Him gathering his people in repentance and in salvation. But when Christ came, what did Israel do? They rejected their Messiah Luke 13, Jesus says to Israel, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to her, how I often wanted to gather your children together, just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not have it. Behold, your house is left to you desolate. There's that word again. And I say to you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So he says, you're, you're going to remain under this judgment of God. You're going to remain, as it were, reaping the benefits or the cursings, really, of the Mosaic Covenant because you're re rejecting God. 
but now you're rejecting the Messiah, and so you're going to stay there desolate. And the next time Israel will, will, will see Christ is when they finally bow the knee and say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. When they finally turn back to Christ and accept him as their Messiah. And this is what Peter said to the Israelites in Acts 3. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, the one whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, but put to death the prince of life. He puts it on them. You killed your Messiah. You rejected him. And now God's going to reject you for the time being. So where does that leave us today? We need to land this plane quickly. Where does that leave us today? Are, are, are God's ancient promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, are they dissolved? Is that promised land now for the church? Are we replacing Israel? Or was it all really some spiritual promise, not a literal land? Was it some spiritual promise uh, instead? Well, third point this morning, the consummation of the promised land. We see this in many places, but one good place is Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31, beginning in verse 31. God makes this promise. He, he makes this, this, this anticipation for this future time. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. There's a new covenant that we enjoy today, church. I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. So it's not with the Gentiles that he makes this covenant. It's with Israel that he makes this covenant. And with the house of Judah. We understand from Romans uh, 11, that we are grafted into Israel through Christ, right? So we get the blessings of the new covenant, but the new covenant was actually historically made to Israel, the nation. But we get to reap the benefits because we, are, we place our faith in Christ, and as it were, we are a branch stuck into the side of this, this tree, and we, we, we uh, get the nutrients, the benefits of being connected to the tree, Israel. And ultimately Christ. Anyways, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Jacob or Judah. Verse 32, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. So he's saying, see, I made a covenant with them when, they, when I rescued them out of Egypt in that exodus. I made a covenant back then, but they, but they didn't meet their side. They didn't, they didn't fulfill their end of the bargain. I held my end up, but they were unfaithful. So I'm going to make a new covenant, he says. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, verse 33 declares the Lord. Here's the covenant. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. So he's saying there is coming a day when Israel will repent of their sins and there will not need to be this push of evangelism into the nation of Israel because most of Israel will be saved through Christ in the gospel. They will find forgiveness through their Messiah. Israel was given this new covenant. In this covenant, God promised to restore Israel to relationship with him. They would turn back to him in repentance and he would forgive them of their sins. And he would bring them to the promised land. Ezekiel 36, 27 and 28. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. 
you will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers. It's part of the new covenant. So you will be my people, and I will be your God. Here in Jeremiah 32, verse 37 to 41, he says, Thus says the Lord, If the heavens can be measured, and the foundations of the earth stretch out below, then I will also cast off all the offspring of Israel, for all that they have done, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, he says, verse 38, declares the Lord, when the city will be rebuilt for the Lord from the tower of Hananel to the corner gate. The measuring line will go out farther, straight ahead to the hill Gareb. Then it will turn to Goa. Jeremiah 32 he extends this promise. Behold, I will, I will gather them. Jeremiah 32, verse 37. Behold, I will gather them out of all the lands to which I have driven them in my anger, in my wrath, and in indignation. And I will bring them back to this place and will make them dwell in safety. They shall be my people. I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me always for their own good and for the good of their children after them. I will make an everlasting covenant with them, and I will not turn away from them to do them good. I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they, so that they will not turn away from me. I will rejoice over them to do them good and will faithfully plant them in this land with all my heart and with all my soul. Again, the themes of the new covenant are repeated, and there will come a time when God's people will return to him, and God's people will once again obey from the heart because he's going to do heart surgery on them. But also, this ushers in a time when they will be gathered into the promised land. This new covenant, this new covenant, was ratified, it was initiated, it was, it was made reality by the Messiah, Jesus Christ, by his blood. But yet, as we saw already, Israel rejected their Messiah. They crucified the one who, who would restore the relationship with God, who would free them, give them peace, and return them to their land. So as a result, the new covenant blessings were given to the Gentiles, to other nations, to you and me. Acts 13, the next Sabbath day, early the whole city assembled to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the things which were spoken by Paul and were blaspheming. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first, Israel, since you repudiated and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, because you are rejecting Christ and the gospel, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles, he says. For so the Lord has commanded us. I have placed you as a light to the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. So today, the offer of Israel, to Israel of the new covenant still stands. The offer of forgiveness in Christ still stands. But as the nations are being saved and redeemed through the gospel of Jesus Christ, it is as if Israel is on the outside looking in now into the family of God. And what happens? According to Romans 11, they would be jealous. Paul says, I say then, they did not stumble as to fall, did they? Israel did not stumble and reject their Messiah as to fall away and to be abandoned by God for all eternity, did they? That's the question. He says, may it never be. But by their transgression, by their rejection of Christ, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. So Israel rejected their Messiah, crucified him on the cross, so that salvation could come to us, and the result of that would be that Israel would be jealous. And he says, if their transgression... If their rejection and crucifixion of Christ is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? So even Paul looks forward to a fulfillment where there will be a day when they will finally, as a nation, 
turn to God in repentance. This is what God is doing. He is reconciling the world to himself through the gospel. All nations are invited in to find forgiveness for their sins today. Every tribe, tongue, and nation are being brought into the family of God through Christ. The result? Israel will become jealous, and finally, after the Lord disciplines them in the coming tribulation, they will finally, in the future, turn back to God through faith in Christ and be fully restored. And at that time, will come a day, that great day of the Lord Jesus Christ, where he, our Messiah, will physically reign on this earth in the millennial kingdom. For a thousand years, he will reign on this earth in Jerusalem, and Israel will live with him in the promised land. And all those wonderful promises of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Zechariah, Malachi, and the other Old Testament prophets, all of those Old Testament prophets, Promises will be fulfilled at last. It will be an age of the world unlike has ever been seen. Under the reign of Jesus Christ, all will be made right. Because many of Israel will one day turn from their sins and finally believe in Jesus Christ, their Messiah. And on the last day, In Revelation 21, I'm ending now. On that last day, as we enter into eternity, God will remove this land and make a new land, the new heaven and the new earth. Revelation 21, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride, adorned for her husband. Verse 22, And I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. In the daytime, for there will be no night there, its gates will never be closed. And they will bring the glory and honor of the nations into it, and nothing unclean, and no one who practice abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the book of life. So what's your part? What's your part? Well, first of all, trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins so that your name will be in that book of life. But also, trust in the promises of God. Trust Him that when He makes a promise to you, He will fulfill it. It might take some time may not be on your time timeline, your time scale. But in his time, his perfect timing, he will fulfill his promises to you, Christian. Continue to trust in your God, church, to guide you, to care for you. What else? Well, what did Paul do when he finished explaining what God is doing and will do in his plans for Israel? He worshiped. At the end of Romans 11, he said, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. I don't know about you, but my brain hurts. And that makes me worship. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who can become his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. God is worthy of more of your trust and your worship. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we bow before you in awe of what you're doing, what you have done, what you are doing, what you will do. 
it's not how we would have done it. Because how we would have done it would have been very simple because that's all our minds can handle. It would have been a pretty simple history. But God, you are so wise, so infinite in your understanding, so powerful in your ability to, to work out the smallest of detail in history. God, we worship you for your wisdom. We thank you, Lord, for your promises that you will fulfill to Israel. And we await that day. Oh, Lord, we pray. Lord Jesus, come. Rescue us from this world. So that you may deal with your people, Israel. And so that they may turn to you finally. And finally bow the knee to Christ. Oh, God, do that. Draw them to yourself. They're your precious, loved people. Bring them back to you. Restore them. But God, as we wait for you and your timing, may we be about the work of the kingdom. May we be about spreading the gospel to the nations. That begins in our home, in our neighborhoods, in our schools, in our workplaces, in our friendships, in our families. God, use us to spread the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. May you bring in worshipers, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand.